Hello. All right. There we go. We can hear you. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick introduction and then you can jump right into it. All right. Go ahead. All right. So for those of you who might not be aware, uh, Dr. Consola here is the author of Against Intellectual Property, a fantastic book I recommend everybody read. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, and he's also the former editor of the Libertarian Papers. With that being said, Dr. Consola, take us away. Awesome. I'm glad to be here. I did this last year, and it was lots of fun, so I'm glad to see all the interest of the people attending. Um, you know, usually I think people here who have heard my stuff uh, probably are familiar with me giving a fairly systematic and comprehensive and uh, structured presentation. But this time, you know, I I'm not actually literally an economist, and so I'm talking um, about inflation with a bunch of Austrian economists, so I thought I would kind of approach it in a, in a more um, casual manner, that is talking about different intersecting th threads of, of uh, uh, related to inflation. Um, uh, and some things having to do with property and money and crypto and law um, and legislation that, that interests me. So I, I first want to go to something that, that I find a, a lot of the things I talk um, when I talk about them, I feel like this very elementary and how can no one talk about like this stuff, but not everyone does. And sometimes I think the, the simple things need to be spelled out. Okay. So what I really admire about Austrian economics is um, praxeology, which is this framework, this way of looking at human action. So what is human action? And I'll get to inflation in a second and money, but basically humans live in the world and we confront uh, a future that's coming and so we see something that we don't like right and so we want to change things so we have to interfere we have to act that's what humans do all the time now in a simple construct like uh, let's let's ignore the fact that there are people around just like robinson crusoe on an island um he engages in action to try to make his life better and sometimes he's successful sometimes he's not um, and, and you could say he engages in what's called exchange sometimes, which means – which is basically part of the concept of opportunity cost, right? So when you want to do something in the future, you know you can only do one thing. You can't do 12 things. So you have to choose the highest valued thing, okay? And so um, the opportunity cost are the things that you chose not to do. So in a sense, you could say that an exchange is when you – exchange one state of affairs for the other right um now in a more complicated sense when other people enter the picture then we have exchange in the sense of i possess certain material objects and someone else possesses certain material objects and we each prefer them differently so we trade them for each other we exchange so that's what exchange is so this is what we call barter and then the law develops, and the law gives a legal protection for this in terms of property rights and contract law. But economically, the concept is you're substituting one position that you prefer for another, right? Okay, so why does money emerge? The way I look at it is that money solves two fundamental problems in society. Um, number one… It's the double coincidence of wants. This is the common one everyone talks about, which is the the idea that you know if if I have bread and I want shoes, but you know I have to find someone who has the exact opposite set of uh, needs. 
needs, and, and that's not always easy to do. Um, so if you have money, you have an intermediate good, that you, an indirect good you can hold, and then everyone wants that 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 saleable good, right? Um, so you can just hold it and buy what you want later. So it solves the double coincidence of wants problems. So it solves the problem of barter, but it solves another problem too, which is what I think most of the Austrians have pointed out with Mises and his calculation problem uh, critique of socialism, right? which is that unless you have money prices, you can't have rational economic calculation. And what that means is this. Um, we, so we live in a world of uh, where value is subjective. Like every person has his own scale of values, and it's also ordinal, not cardinal. That is, you just rank things, but you can't. You don't have a number attached to them. Um, so everything is hetero heterogeneous, right? So uh, you know, my cow is not the same as my car, etc. And so it, you can't compare these things. And the the lack of the ability to compare is it seems like a simple arithmetic problem. But it really is the central problem of economics is that um, if you can't compare things, you, you're very um, um, hampered in your ability to rationally decide which project to pursue. Basically, which one is going to give me the most profit? So when you say the most profit, you're, you're talking about a cardinal or quantity. So you need some way to compare things. And that's where money comes in. So when you have money, you have money prices, and that, that sort of reduces everything to a common denominator. Okay, so basically, money solves these two problems, um, overcomes the problem of barter, and it allows people to calculate rationally. Okay, so that's what's great about money. Now, of course, money is going to tend to be uh, a liquid, fungible thing that is plentiful enough to serve as money, but not too plentiful that it's uh, the value is too high, and you have to carry, you know, um, you know, ten buckets of ten wheelbarrows of coal with you to, to trade. You want something that's a little bit more rare, so you can put it in your pocket. So it tends to be a precious metal over time, like gold or silver or something like that. So we can understand how a commodity that has a value and a need or use in society tends to become um, money. Now, my view as a Bitcoiner and as an Austrian and as a libertarian is that um, th this function of money is best solved by one money. And, and th therefore, I, I agree with Mises and Hoppe and, uh, and Rothbard that there would naturally be a tendency towards one money in the, in the whole world. And I think historically that tended to be gold, right? Um, now, when you have physical money, you have some problems with physical money. That is the problem of, being st of storing it, the problem of, um, uh, of trading it, transporting it problem of theft and loss, and also the problem of small change, which is why I think that we've had a bimetallic or, or multiple monies, like so you have gold and silver and other things, because the gold is just too valuable because it's rarer, so you need silver to make small change and things like that. Now, I'll, I'll get to this in a minute, but with Bitcoin and digital money, <laughs> these problems disappear because everything is digital, right? So you only need one, you don't need, you don't need two monies or three or four, you only need one. Um, Okay, so money solves a problem, but then what happens is the state steps in, and like the state does, the state co-ops useful institutions in society and then persuades people with propaganda that it's the natural supplier of these things uh, like education and defense and police services and law and order and transportation um, and money, right? So the government basically 
steps in and co-ops this institution. So one disadvantage of gold as money is that it leads to the need for people to put their money into um, a bank, right, for storage purposes. Um, but then because of the state's involvement and because money is a physical thing, um, two different functions of the sort of banking industry get, get, uh, get conflated. So one is the storage function, right? Like just someone safeguarding your money for you. And the other is credit intermediation. That is, you know, I hold some gold, but I want to make some profit above the natural rate of deflation in society. Um, so a bank can like, I can loan my money to the bank. The bank can lend it to its customers and give me part of the cut, right? So that's what credit intermediation is. But because the same institution does both things, and then with the state's involvement, these roles get blended together, and then we, we end up having fractional reserve banking, which is what we have now, which gives rise to the business cycle and uh, inflation and things like this. Um, so money comes in and solves the problem of a barter society, but then the state co-ops it and screws it up. So this is why we need, I think, Bitcoin, because because Bitcoin is a digital money, and it has does have some disadvantages with respect to physical money, but it has many advantages too. And it's it's, it's not uh, certain which one will win out in the long run, uh, and and the government's involvement could distort this. But my view, and the view of many crypto people, is that. Um, um, digital form of money is ultimately superior and will ultimately win out just just like digital technology has won out in other realms of life um you know email has replaced letters and digital camera uh, filming has replaced uh, analog um there are just too many too many advantages of of the digital realm over the analog realm um one of them being that you know, uh, you could self-store your Bitcoin fairly easily on a little thumb drive, and you don't need to go to a bank. And if you do go to a bank or something like Coinbase, I, their costs are so low that they can basically give it to you for free. Un, you know, unlike in the old model when you actually have to have guards and insurance and a, a vault storing the gold, and so there's a cost involved, right? Um, so theoretically, um, uh, the storage aspect of money can be radically um, changed with the digital money and then transportation and also uh, with cryptography, you can protect it from theft and from government intrusion. So, so there's so many advantages to a digital money. And now, now there's one other difference too. Um, lots of gold advocates, some Austrians, some libertarians, they will sort of say something like, well, uh, like the Peter Schiff types, you know, um, 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 Bitcoin isn't backed by anything, but gold is at least backed by something, right? Um, <laughs> well, the, here's the thing. When you have a commodity like gold, which has a real use in the world, like for ornamentation or for industrial uses, right? So it actually has a use. But then when it starts being traded as a money, it gets a, pr a monetary premium. So its value goes up because it's now useful for, in addition to its ornamental uses, and for jewelry and its uh, industrial uses for uh, for electronics and things like that. Um, now it's useful as a money, so its value goes up. I don't know if the, I don't know the percentages. I don't know if, if there have been studies on this. My 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 impression is it's about um, a tenfold appreciation. So basically, if if gold is actually serving as money, 
then maybe 10% of its value is its non-monetary use value. And 90% of it is the monetary value, something like that. Okay. But the point is, <laughs> if, if, if gold was money and stopped being used as money, then the monetary premium would, would evaporate or reduce. So you, you, you would never be backed by anything. So the whole idea of, of money being backed by a real use value is nonsense because whatever is money always will have a monetary premium. And that part is just from the network effect and it, you can never be backed up. Um, okay, so that's one thing. So when people criticize Bitcoin for having no intrinsic value, in addition to making this um, this 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 economic mistake of thinking there's such a thing as intrinsic value, which Austrians don't believe in because the value is subjective, um, uh, it, it's it's just simply the case that that even gold could never have enough intrinsic value to back it. Like so, money is is impossible to back up money. The only reason we have money backed up now is because the FDIC, which is backed up. Uh, which is backed up by the uh, the force of the state, right? With Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in the U.S. I'm talking about. So, um, so the point is that Bitcoin doesn't have an intrinsic value, but but even gold wouldn't have an intrinsic value that could back up the money supply. And not only that, I would argue that it's actually a good thing that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Like its only use is as money. Um, because when you have gold as money, you have lots of waste. I mean, let's just imagine an example. Um, some guy spends, you know, ten million dollars, or let's say ten billion dollars, uh, mining gold that's worth, you know, ten point one billion dollars. So he makes a little profit, but he spends all this resources. And did he add any real wealth to the world? So this is one mistake I think a lot of people make, including some Austrians. They tend to equate wealth with money. And um, while I appreciate the subjective nature of value and that anything, any transaction should be legal, including mining gold, um, my view is that um, a, a digital money is better because it doesn't waste as many resources, right? So I think that's what would tend to happen. Um, so, so, for example, it, it, you know, if you, if you mine too much gold, not too much, but if you if you mine gold, you're diverting the, the gold that could be used for practical resources away from technology, from industry, from, from ornamentation. Okay, so let me talk about a few other things too here. Um, this concept of inflation, there, there are several really good articles on this and books on this. Uh, Guido Holzman, Paul Cantor has one on Thomas Mann and hyperinflation. How this whole inflationary mentality, once you have a system where the money supply is always being inflated, which always leads to the value of the money being eroded over time, it leads to a change in the mentality of the people, right? This is the big problem with inflation. I mean, we, we probably all experienced the case of like, you know, our dad saying things like, uh, oh, when I was, uh, when I was 20 years old, uh, gasoline was... 15 cents a gallon or something like that. So they're always kind of complaining about it. But then our counter response is, well, yeah, but you were being paid, you know, $17,000 a year too. So like it goes apace, but we get used to this idea that prices are always going up and our wages are always going up. No one can tell whether they're being matched or not. We have a feeling they're probably not like the last 20, 30 years, at least anyway. Um, and so, um, it, 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 
what it what it tends to do is it leads to this idea that you have to get things now. And the problem with this is that um, the, the reason we have civilization and prosperity is because we engage in long-term planning. Um, this is the whole idea of having a system of property rights and a society where your rights are respected so you can engage in long-term production processes, what we call roundabout production processes. Uh, and this is what some people talk about as time preference and which is reflected in the interest rate, right? So the the lower the interest rate, the higher the time, uh, the lower the time preference, which means that the, the longer you're willing to wait for a return on your investment. And because uh, the longer you're willing to wait, the more options you have in front of you as to the production process you can engage in, um, then you, you can you can choose the, the more and more efficient ones, the more and more productive ones. Right. Um, which is simply to say that um, the, the lower our time preference, um, the more wealthy we are, and the, you know, I'll say happier, but the more wealthy we are as a people. Um, but the problem is when, when the, the money is always debased, it leads to this mentality. I mean, we get so used to things, and we think that they're normal, right? They're in our culture. They're in our movies. Um, so what happens now, like in the U.S., in, in the West, um, uh, a young kid goes to high school, maybe goes to college, gets a job, starts earning money, pays one third of it in taxes, can hardly save anything. So he. Oh, I've written a lot about intellectual property and I've argued against it for various reasons. Okay. Now, most libertarians also are familiar with this sort of uh, this idea that we. We libertarians believe in negative rights, but not positive rights. And by positive rights, I mean welfare rights, like the right to get assistance from someone else, like money, housing, education, food, whatever. Because we libertarians recognize that if you grant someone a positive right, okay, it's never free. It always comes at the expense of someone else, and that's our problem with it, right? And this is what the you know the left, lefty Democrat types don't seem to recognize or care about. Um, they think you can just grant someone you know debt forgiveness for their college loans or give them housing and just just give it to them, right? Just print more money, for example, to do it. Um, but of course, we recognize that resources are scarce, and that if you grant someone something, it always comes at the expense of something else. So this is a point I've made many times to explain. Um, not only why we oppose positive rights, we libertarians, although I will say there's one, um, one confusion about this. Libertarians do not oppose positive rights per se, just unchosen positive obligations. So, for example, um, um, here's a classic example. I'm walking down the road. There's a guy drowning in a lake. Do I have an obligation to jump in and try to save the guy? Legally, no. Right. No. So there's no the guy has no positive right for me to rescue him. And I have no positive obligation to do it. I might have a moral obligation, uh, a legally enforceable. Like if I don't rescue the guy and he drowns, I'm not guilty of murder. Okay? Um, however, if I push him in the lake, <laughs> I do have an obligation to try to save him. So I'm responsible for what. Uh, so if so, the point is, I can incur a positive obligation. So libertarians are not against positive obligations per se. We're just against unchosen positive obligations. And by the way, a, corroll a corollary to this is like 
uh, you know, the distinction between rape and consensual sex. Um, you know, if you have sex with a girl and she consents, it's fine. But if she doesn't consent, it's rape. So it, the whole issue is consent. Right. And so if a guy's in the lake drowning and I pushed him in and he didn't consent to me doing that. Right. So that 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 marks the difference. Right. So but the, but the, but the point here is this. Um, you can't just multiply positive applications for free. It always costs something. And this is analogous to the problem of monetary inflation. Now, in the in the case of intellectual property, it's the same thing. So you have people who advocate for intellectual property rights, right? Like patenting copyright, and they'll say that, oh, ideas are valuable things that are created. You can sell them, you can trade them, you can use them. Um, so what's wrong with just adding them to the list of rights? So we have property rights in animals and in cars and in land and in houses and even our own bodies. Why not just say we also have property rights in intellectual or ideal creations? But again, the problem with this is just like money. You know, it, it's just it's like the, the, the fallacy where people say, why can't we just uh, – uh, 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 solve the problem of poverty by just printing more money. <laughs> I mean, obviously, money is not wealth. So printing money doesn't create wealth. It only redistributes wealth, right? Um, and if you print more money and give it to the poor, you're redistributing resources from everyone else to those people who got the money. And you cause price inflation as a consequence. And you also cause set in motion of possibly the business cycle, and you have other effects too, right? Um, right. So uh, by the same token, if you create new rights, just like if you create positive rights, it always comes at the expense of negative rights. If you create intellectual property rights, it always comes at the expense of tangible of rights and material objects. Because in the end, all pro property rights are rights and material resources. Um, um, because what property is, is a mechanism for solving conflict or violence or physical disputes people have um and so in the end every property right specifies an owner of, of a given resource that could be contested and these resources are the types of things that can be contested which are physical material objects scarce resources or as i call them conflictable or rivalrous things right um so when you have um an intellectual property right it's actually not really a property right in information or ideas that's literally impossible. Now, now, when I make this comment, sometimes people get confused. They think that I'm just saying I don't like it or I oppose it uh, ethically. That's not what my point is. My point is it's literally impossible to own an idea because ownership means a property right. Property rights are always legally enforceable, right? The word force is there, enforceable, physical force. And physical force can only be applied to physical things that can – you know, can be the recipient of force, uh, physical objects. That's what human action is all about, manipulating the world in physical ways to control these scarce resources and means to cause things to happen, right? So every law it, – it, it's very similar to the libertarian idea that um, all law is ultimately enforced at the point of a bayonet or the bullet, which means the rubber hits the road when you actually put someone in prison. Like if the law said – you have to pay 65% of your income in taxes, and you have to show up for, uh, for, for, uh, to fight in this war, but the law didn't enforce it. We wouldn't care. <laughs> I wouldn't mind the government just saying that, 
what I mind is that they're backing up their their coercive um, demands by force. Like they're going to put me in prison or kill me if I don't show up. So that's the actual – so the rubber when the rubber hits the road is when force is actually being used. It's the same thing with all law. All law is ultimately enforced by physical force against physical tangible things. So when you have a law that says something like, oh, you have a right to your invention or you have a right to your novel, that's just a disguise. It's a way to, to confuse people about what's really going on. Because what's really going on is that the law is simply transferring ownership rights in physical things to someone else. This is what I call a negative easement or a negative servitude. Now, in the law, um, a negative easement or servitude is perfectly legitimate if it is consented to, just like sex between a man and a woman is fine if they both consent. But if they don't, it's rape. Right, so the, the the issue for for use of someone else's resource always has to do with what the owner wants done with it. So they communicate their consent or their lack of consent. No, you can't use my car. Yes, you can use my car. Uh, no, I don't give you my car. Yes, I hereby transfer my car to you. Right, so you can, as owner, this is what ownership means: is the right to communicate your consent about how other people can use the thing, because ownership. Ultimately, it's the right to exclude people from using things, right? Okay. So the, the point is this. If you, you own a resource like a home or a factory, there's nothing wrong with you making an agreement with someone, which we call a negative servitude, to give them the right to prevent you from using that resource in a certain way. Like I can agree with my neighbors in a homeowners association uh, that we can't paint our houses certain colors without everyone's permission. So if, if we all agree to that, it's perfect. Consensual and it's fine, but if the state comes in and announces an edict saying, "Oh, we're hereby giving um, Stefan's neighbor Jim the right to prevent him from building his house to a certain height," then what they're doing is they're taking a negative servitude from me without my consent. And this is ultimately what patents and copyrights do. Um, uh, so when you have a patent or a copyright, it gives the holder of that IP right. The right to go to court to use physical force to prevent someone else from using their resource as they see fit. So this is another problem with inflation, one type of inflation, rights inflation, I call it. And uh, we should oppose – so we should oppose all types of inflation, property rights inflation, positive rights inflation, IP rights inflation, and inf expansion of the monetary supply, um, um, which leads to price inflation. And I will pause here and take any questions. All right. Thank you very much. First question we have here is a pretty complicated one, so we might go the distance just with this one question alone. But the question we have here is, is rights theory a proper subset of ethics? And additionally, what is the proper meta-ethical conception of rights? Mm, that is an interesting question. <laughs> um, so I think rights theory – I do think rights theory is uh, – um, is a subset of, um, or at least an intersecting set of ethics, ethical theory. Um, I don't know if it's a proper subset. And let me let me put it this way: um, I think um, when people are coming to be libertarians, the first thing they understand, somewhat dimly maybe, but the first thing they understand is that um, um, why do we oppose certain laws, like I don't know, laws against pornography or whatever or, or or law mandating a certain religion 
We oppose it because we recognize that e we we recognize that not everything that's immoral uh, should be illegal. So we recognize the distinction. Now, if you think more closely about that, then you start thinking, well, what that means is, is that rights violations are a subset of ethical theory. So, so in other words, the first inclination, which I which I respect, I think it's wrong, and I'll get to this in a second. But the the first idea is that um, uh, not everything that's immoral is a rights violation, but everything that is a rights violation is immoral. So it's Always, it's always immoral to commit aggression, for example. So you can think of it as a proper subset. Now, I actually think that's that's probably wrong, and the reason is this: um, um, uh, I I have become over the years um, persuaded by an aspect of the approach of Douglas Rasmussen and denial and Douglas denial in their um, in their uh, norms of liberty. And there's another book. Um, um, and their their view is that the non-aggression principle, let's say, is a metanorm, not a norm. Now, by metanorm, what they mean is it's a it's a rule that guides what laws we should have, but it's not a guide to individual action. So, in a sense, I think that the, the non-aggression principle tells us what laws are justified, but it doesn't tell us how to act. And but what that means is that you know. Just like it's not always illegal to be like um, if you want to insult your grandmother and make her cry for no reason, that's immoral, but it's not illegal. But by the same token, in my view, if something is a rights violation, it's not necessarily immoral either because you can imagine situations where you ought to violate someone's rights um, for some higher ethical concern, which to me just says that ethics and and, and rights. Rights are intersecting sets, but not, they're not the same. So that, that's that's my view on that one. Uh, I would recommend people read. I, I've got some stuff I've written on this, um, and uh, like I said, Rasmussen and Denol I've written on this as well. And it's hinted at in Rothbard and Block, um, or when Rothbard has these hints that um, that libertarianism is not an ethical theory. It doesn't tell you how to act in your personal life. He's a little bit contradictory and vague on it sometimes, but I think he's getting at this insight that we're really talking about. Um, a code of values um, and rules and norms that guide us into what laws are justified. Um, so all this means is – so for example, I have the right to stand on my rights and be an asshole and be immoral, but it doesn't mean I should do it. All right. Next question here. Um, regarding… Are your comments on Block and Barnett's on the optimal quantity of money paper that they wrote? Isn't the Block subsidy to Bitcoin miners an instance of additions to the money stock that have a positive social welfare consequences, even in the case of purely digital oh, that's good. money? That's, that's a good question. Um, well, I th I think that as a practical matter, Hoshi or whoever they 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 try to come up with a way to bootstrap this thing, right? Um, I mean, in a sense, I think calling it Bitcoin. I mean, it wasn't a coin. It was just a, a, a digital ledger system, right? A decentralized digital ledger system. By calling it a coin, they were trying to get people to think of it like money and to encourage them to use it as money. But I think any money has to be bootstrapped somehow. So that's that's okay with me. Um, so I think that 
I think they, they thought they had to have this incentive process that lasts what ninety nine or hundred years or whatever that slowly that slowly fades out. So at, at least ideally, in the end, Bitcoin will have no um, will have no inflation. But the but the inflation is at least known and predictable and baked in. It's very very small at this point. Uh, but yeah, I think that in a sense there is a there's a waste. But instead of calling it a waste, I think you could just call it a cost. It's free. So if you have a money which again solves these problems that we mentioned earlier, the barter problem and the money monetary calculation problem, then it's going to have a cost. And for Bitcoin, the cost is the the electricity and the you know all the mining rigs and and for now the rewards to the miners. Um, now whether this slight inflationary effect sets in motion the business cycle, I don't know. I think Bob Murphy has an interesting episode about whether private gold mining in a free market gives rise to the business cycle, um, and that's an interesting question. I am not persuaded that it doesn't. If it does, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Uh, it condemns the practice. It just means that's part of the cost of having a real world monetary system. So we always have to compare things. Is it better to have a world with money with all the costs and? problems associated with it or to not have money i, I mean there's no utopia out there so I, I just think money is a useful uh a useful institution in society and helps us uh helps us achieve wealth all right for the next question i'm going to take my moderator privilege and ask a question of my own um we hear a lot of bemoaning especially Especially from more right-wing figures about how China will steal, quote, intellectual property from the West and things like that from different companies and things. They'll make their own versions of it or just blatantly rip off other th things that exist in the United States and other countries. Um, I was just curious if you had a perspective or a view on that sort of problem. I do. Exists. Uh, first of all, it's not. A, I think that there is no problem. Um, I would say 90% of the people making this claim don't know what they're talking about or they're being dishonest. Um, so first of all, as a, as a purely legal matter, China is literally not stealing uh, Western or American intellectual property. Um, e even if you totally agree with these legal systems, which I don't, um, patent and copyright law are completely domestic. It is literally impossible for anyone in China to violate an American patent. They can only violate Chinese patents, and and they have their own patent system just like we do. And neither system is 100% effective or enforceable, but they both operate in a rickety fashion. And just like the drug the drug laws, you know, uh, they have some effect, but they're not perfectly enforceable. Um, so China is literally not stealing American. Not only that, it's impossible to steal. And that's another misnomer. Uh, you can infringe patent and copyrights, but you can't steal it. Stealing actually means literally taking something, a physical thing that someone else owns. And that's actually not what happens in, in patent law. It's just an infringement action. Um, what people are getting this, and I don't think – I don't know if they all understand this. Um, China does not have a completely free market, uh, not anything like the U.S. does. So they live more on a, on a permission system where if you want to open a factory or open a business venture in China, you need to get all these regional and other uh, permissions from government agencies, right, basically. 
You have to get a license. Okay, so what happens is you can't just open up a company there. You have to get permissions from all these governments. So the governments naturally add conditions to these permissions. They'll say, okay, if you Apple, if Apple wants to open a factory in China because the workforce is cheaper there and they can save money, then you have to get our permission. But we're going to only give you permission if if you agree to do a joint venture with a local company, so we can claim that you know you're stimulating jobs here or something like that. Um, so Apple uh, agrees to do this, but they know that the price of doing that is they have to have a V with a, with, a, with a Chinese company and that over time their trade secrets are going to leak. Now, trade secret is one type of IP intellectual property law, but it's not patent or copyright. Um, and anyway, if you're going to have a factory in China, even if it's your own employees, the trade secrets can leak because information can be leaked. This happens in the U.S. too. So what's happening is that um, Western companies agree to partner with Chinese companies as a as a as a as a cost of doing business in China, and over time, their trade secret information spills out and gets leaked, and then the competitors in, in China get the information and they 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 found a competing company that will make similar devices, right? So, but this is just the problem of of the world. World, that information can't be contained, right? Um, but China itself is not stealing anything. So it's complete BS. Um, it, it's used to demonize China. In fact, I mean, I'm not a fan of Asian culture or, 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 or communism and all this stuff. But to China's credit, I mean, they, they have, there's a book called uh, To Steal an Idea is an Elegant Offense or something like that. I mean, the, but, but the idea is that if if uh if if certain Western technology or processes are emulated by the the poorer countries in the world that are industrializing and becoming richer, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It makes everyone better off. It's not bad when people emulate useful ideas and knowledge and techniques and design. All right. Next question here. Is uh, I'm aware that you have an objectivism section on your website. So, what is your opinion of objectivism? Would you consider yourself an objectivist? And if not, what are your main contentions with objectivism aside from the obvious issue of intellectual property? Well, um, I, okay. There, I, I guess there are three three problems with objectivism. Uh, number one, theory, which which is pro IP, which is totally totally confused and wrong. And number two is their, their minarchism or their opposition to anarchy, So, um, which in a way is belied by Ayn Rand's own uh, vision in Atlas Shrugged, which is almost, you know, um, Gauss culture is almost anarchist. So I think her, 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 her opposition to anarchy and their pro-IP stuff is their biggest sort of substantive problems. Um, personally, I, I still think I'm an objectivist because I agree with the main tenets of their philosophy, their philosophy as, as broadly stated. They probably wouldn't claim me. Um, but yeah, so basically I believe I, – I think they're correct about objective reality and uh, capitalism, which I, you know, I, I, I think of as having a private property order, um, ethical, what, ethical egoism, rational selfishness. So – like I agree with all of her four main tenets. Um, uh, I think that they're oh the third the third problem is that they're they're so humorless. <laughs> they're humorless and they're uh, they're too serious though. 
<laughs> but uh, so I would consider myself to be maybe a neo-objectivist because uh, I think if you if you purge its IP stuff and its anarchy stuff, then it's basically correct. In fact, I think Murray Rothbard is heavily objectivist in his outlook. Uh, he didn't always uh, admit this because you know he had this schism, this break with them, or he didn't always give them footnote credit or whatever. But uh, you can see lots of influences with the the Randian worldview among Walter Block and Murray Rothbard and and even Mises to some to some extent. So yes, I'm a fan of objectivism, but not their humorlessness and not their IP stuff and not their anarchy. I guess an addendum to that last question: Do you have a particular work by Ayn Rand that's your favorite, one of her novels or anything? Well, I guess I, I, I probably her book Capitals and the Unknown Ideal has a lots of really. It's just really good, really good non a nonfiction collection by her. There's there's several others, but uh, I think Capitals and the Unknown Ideal is the one I would I would recommend people to start with. And of her of her of her books, I mean, I used to like the Fountainhead, and that's that's the Fountainhead is actually what got. I mean, started on this whole path when I was in high school. Someone recommended it to me. But the more I think about the Fountainhead, I don't. There's like very little to like about it, or there's very little libertarian about it because it's about an IP terrorist who's a quasi rapist who is a narcissist and treats his clients like shit. I mean, it's like it's it's just it's got nothing to do with what we value. Now, Atlas Shrugged, I think, is it's it's a really amazing book, very prescient. Um, I think that's her best book. I think Atlas Shrugged by far is her best book um, for, from a libertarian point of view. But I would say capitalism, the end of ideal. All right, we'll go one last question here. And this is a question relating to the negative servitudes that you mentioned in your talk earlier. So the question here is, would these negative servitudes be anal analogous to the Roman law of servitudes? If so, would someone have a right against someone building a wall on their own property to block? block oh, yes, yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So so yeah, servitude is actually a civil law or a Roman law concept, and in the common law analog is negative easement or negative servitude. Um, and these are long established um, ways that property law in both the Roman slash civil law in Europe and the common law deal with property rights. Um, so there are there are I was talking more about uh, contractually agreed to. Uh, negative easements or servitudes, um, but you could have implicit ones too. And but that's a whole different issue. Like so, whether whether your neighbor has the right to build. Now there, there's this thing called the everyone's probably heard of the ad colum doctrine. Um, maybe I'm mispronouncing it. It's the idea that you own if you own a piece of land, you own beneath it down to the center of the earth and above it up to the heavens. Right, the ad colum doctrine. Uh, Obviously, that rule has been relaxed in, uh, to a degree in the sense that, like, you can't stop an airplane from flying, you know, five miles above your house. But it, but your property rights do extend above you to some extent. And in, in many jurisdictions, this has been um, interpreted to mean um, that uh, uh, if you have a neighbor and they have a building, they can't they can't build into your airspace without your permission. Uh, and you could view that as sort of a negative easement, but I think it's more just an extension of your property rights. Um, but by and large, if you want to protect your right to view or something like that, uh, it's better to get an agreement. Like, So you could get an agreement from your neighbors. Oh, you won't build over 11 stories, so my view won't be blocked. 
And then once you have that right, it is a real right. And when we say real right, we mean um, arrest. It, it, it attaches to the property so that whoever comes to own the, the next property inherits that right. It's not just a contra contract between two people. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gonsola, for coming on here. We very much appreciate it. Thanks so much.